Hello and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins, I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager, I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on Story of the Book, we're going to be talking to Lindsay Eager. Lindsay Eager was born and raised just outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. She lives surrounded by mountains with her husband and two wild daughters. She loves sharks, coffee, flannel, winter, rollerblading, baking, running, playing the piano, nonfiction about jungle exploration, and making up stories. Her debut, Hour of the Bees, came out from Candlewick Press to critical acclaim, and her follow-up, Race to the Bottom of the Sea, was named by Booklist as one of the 50 best middle-grade books of the century. Her most recent work, The Bigfoot Files, is out now, and she has more books under contract with Candlewick, both middle-grade and YA. Her agent is Victoria Marini at Irene Goodman. I first met Lindsay when she agreed to blurb my debut novel. We share a publisher and my editor reached out to her. And I'll never forget how generous she was with her praise. Lindsay is one of the kindest people I know. And she also happens to be a brilliant writer who can write just about anything with an astounding level of virtuosity. She's an incredible writer, teacher, reader and friend. And I loved having this conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Okay. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Haley. So <laughs> it's so nice to have you on our own podcast. Oh my gosh. Um, today we're going to be talking about your second book, Race to the Bottom of the Sea, which is a, one of my favorite middle grade books ever. So Aww. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. It's such a brilliant piece of writing, piece of art. So yeah, do you want to start with maybe just pitching Race to the Bottom of the Sea for us, just so we know what it's about? It's about Fidelia Quayle, who is the daughter of two very brilliant, very esteemed marine biologists in a sort of secondary world that's very that's very much like an analog to turn of the century 1900s or late Victorian sort of England's uh, or even some parts, maybe even like East America, like the um, like Nantucket area. Anyway, uh, at the very beginning of the book, she loses her parents in a horrible kind of accident while she's out helping her parents collect data on the sharks in the bay. Uh, she's a brilliant inventor and that's sort of her contribution to her parents' marine biology work. Um, after she loses her parents and is sort of grieving, she's living with her aunt Julia, who is the town librarian and who's very buttoned up. And, uh, Fidelia is kidnapped by a pirate who is dying and wants Fidelia to help him reach a treasure that is sunken to the bottom of the sea. So Fidelia goes along with this pirate. His name is Merrick the Monstrous. Um, he's rather unpleasant, but also has a sort of charm about him that's <laughs> sort of interesting. And um, as she sort of learns more about him and as the reader learns more about him, she sort of understands that um, there's maybe more to Merrick's story than she understood previously. And 
sort of it's a book about grief and um reinventing yourself in the wake of terrible tragedy and second chances and pirates and librarians and candy and sharks and adventure (laughs) and sword fights and all of all of the things and all marine biology as much as I could cram in it's a book that is 10 year old Lindsay as an object like if, (laughs) if I could take 10 year old me and transform her into a thing it would be this book So I wanted to ask you about how you got the idea for this book Mm -hmm. with also like the sub question of, I know in previous conversations, we've spoken about how you had, I don't know if it was one trunked version or several trunked versions of this book. Um, And I'm not sure if I got this right, but is this the first middle grade book that you tried to write? Um, Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I want to know about like the idea, but then also how the idea kind of evolved and changed over all those trunked versions and like what it was in the beginning and then what it became yes absolutely so the idea actually started as literally a list of all of those things that we were just talking about Ah, I love that Uh, yeah it was my it was my probably 20th attempt at writing a novel starting from when I was like 12 Mm. (laughs) um I used to start novels all the time I would start novels and get like three or four chapters in and then just lose steam because I did not know how to write a novel yet. And I did that. I mean, I did that with more frequency after I, after high school, I was still, I was really determined to finish a book. I just, I did not have the tools to do it. Mm. So, um, so like my family and my friends knew I was always working on something, but I think they were always afraid to ask in case I had just put something away. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So when I was 22, um, I finally finished my very first novel and it was a novel for adults. Although if I wrote it today, I think it would be new adult. It was about a girl in college, sort of like fabulous, uh, magical realism is type story. It was terrible, but I finished it and it felt great. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next year I wrote another novel. I wrote um, a YA about mermaids in Ireland. And that was also really fun and very much a me book. Um, but it was also the uh, a book that I wrote before I really understood both of those books. I didn't really understand like genre or the publishing industry. I just kind of sat mm-hmm. down and wrote. Um, after I wrote that book about mermaids in Ireland, that's when I sat down and really looked at um, the publishing industry. Actually, I had a really good friend say, she read the, the mermaid book and said, this is really good, but I don't know if it's middle grade or a YA, which is it? Mm-hmm. My character was 14, but it had, it was very much YA feelings. Right. And I didn't even really understand the difference. So she gave me really great advice. She said, go to the bookstore and just walk over to the first section that you normally would go in to go shop for books and look and see where you are. And that's what oh, you should be I writing. I love that advice. Wow. It was great. Mm. And so I went to my local Barnes and Noble and tried to do exactly what I always do, which is absolutely walk straight back to the middle grade section and look at mm. Roald Dahl and look at a series of unfortunate events and look mm. at the Ramona books and look at like all of those books. And so I was like, oh yeah, I, this is what I want to write. I mean, I want I wanted to and continue to want to write all of it, but that was what I wanted to write was a a middle grade book. Um, So that's when I started plotting 
race to the bottom of the sea. Um, and I literally sat down and made a list of everything that I thought would be interesting in a middle grade book that would have made 10 year old me want to pick it up. And that would also make 23 year old me or 24 year old me, however old I was at the time, want to keep working on it. Cause like, that was another big secret that I had figured out is like, if you want to keep writing a novel and not stop after three chapters, you should probably make it interesting to you, the writer. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it helps a lot. The book yeah. about mermaids was super interesting because that was something I was super into. And so I like, I don't know why I hadn't thought of that before. Just like, oh yeah, you're allowed to as the writer. And in fact, it's probably imperative that you make it interesting to yourself. So I was making my list, um, just writing in story elements and, you know, eventually got to like, yeah, pirates, what kind of pirate? Well, there was a pirate movie that I loved and watched all the time when I was growing up. It's an old nineties Disney movie that no one has ever heard of called shipwrecked. Ah. Um, and it actually, I believe was originally like a Norwegian movie that Disney. Oh, okay. I've never produced. heard of it either. It's so good. It's so, it's such a perfect nineties adventure movie. It's great. <laughs> cool. It's, it's so wonderful. Um, and Gabrielle Byrne, the, mm incredibly handsome Irish actor plays a pirate bad guy named Merrick which is Ah. I totally stole his name for sure from that because that was like direct (laughs) inspiration so my list eventually got very specific like pirates well Mm -hmm. what kind of pirates well like a very broody handsome bad pirate I also was very this was in the era of um like Jake and the Neverland Pirates, which was a TV show on Disney for little kids mm-hmm. about pirates, like characters who are pirates technically, but never did anything pirate-like. Like there's literally <laughs> a, sc- if you Google Jake and the Neverland Pirates, you can find a screen cap where one of the pirates is saying to the, to the, the viewer, a pirate never steals. And it's like, uh, what? <laughs> Yeah, they do. Um, <laughs> that's kind of I, the whole definition of being a pirate. <laughs> right. But this was supposed to be like for little kids and like that's they're so good cute. pirates. It's so funny. And so I just really wanted my pirates to actually be not even morally gray, just like, like bad. Like, yeah. <laughs> done bad things. So, so as I made my list, it got more specific and like specific characters started popping out. Um, marine biology. I was there's some kids who are like horse girls. Mm. I was a shark girl. I just was this nerdy shark pusher. I don't know why. <laughs> I grew up in Utah in the middle of this desert. There's no sharks around me yeah. except for in like aquariums. But I don't know. I watched a National Geographic about them when I was six or seven and just decided this is my favorite animal. I am now obsessed. Yeah. And was like, reciting scientific names obsessed like knew all the anatomy you know by heart obsessed I just loved them so I knew if I could slip a shark into this book and not just a shark but all sorts of underwater creatures then in the times when writing became hard at least I would still be writing about a shark and so it would be interesting that way yeah Um, And I will say the original list was a lot longer, Mm -hmm. 
because the original draft was basically the plot of like eight books shoved together. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. Like, oh, <laughs> okay. Some of the things that were in the original draft, I don't know. I got this idea in my head somewhere and I don't know where this came from that in order for, for me to make this book exciting, each chapter should have like its own setting and its own like complete plot. Wow. <laughs> so it like moved from chapter to chapter and would feel like you were starting over completely in like a new wow. story. Yeah. So originally Fidelia arrived at an orphanage, which was called Ming and Moon's School for Orphans. <laughs> there were two terrible like think the the sisters who run a little prince who run the the school in a little princess oh so no who's like <laughs> tall and skinny and bony and really mean and one who is like shorter and fatter and kind of nicer mm. and ming was an inventor who had this who had all of these like torture devices to punish the children including this <laughs> thing that i called a slapatron oh that, my like, gosh was, I know, like, can you imagine all That's of like this? It's like Mrs. Trunchbull. It kind of was. It totally yeah. was. There was also this whole like mystery at an aquarium that they went and solved mm. before they ever went before Fidelia ever got out into the ocean wow. with pirates. There was a at one point she hired a private investigator to find her parents because in <laughs> earlier drafts, her she thought her parents might still be alive. Mm. And this private investigator comes out of retirement to find her parents only if she'll reveal the information, the whereabouts of this specific, very exotic bird, because he's a bird watcher. Like it was oh, just, wow. it was so, I kind of so, love that, but yeah. Well, yeah. Like every single element on its own could have been the great spark for a whole other book. I worked on, I mean, I went through so many iterations of this book in like an 18 month period where I would fast draft it um, and then immediately stop and delete a bunch of stuff and then fast oh, draft wow. it again, um, more pared down. Yeah. Um, so I did that like between 2011 and 2013. Yeah. Um, until I finally had, had sort of slimmed it down to the basic storyline that you see today in the book you put it away for a while right or did, I did you I did I did that in 2013 I put it away in yeah. June of 2013 um because I had just hit the point where I just I wasn't a good enough writer yet and it was just time to work mm. on something else yeah well I think it's I so wise to recognize that to be able to go oh okay I really want to still write this but maybe I'm not the writer I need to be to write it now. Like yeah. I'm not the writer that I need to be yet. And like putting it away with the, the hope or the trust that you can come back when you've developed your craft a little bit more. Yeah. And I yeah. for sure did not think of it like that at the time. It felt like a huge, <laughs> felt like such a, um, a waste of time. Like it felt like yeah. I had invested all of this time and mm. it, it especially hurt too, because I felt like I told so many people I was working on this book with the pirates mm. and the sharks. And so then I would have people ask like, well, did you ever finish it? And to be like, kind of, but no, not yet. Yeah. Um, I really thought that would be my debut. 
I just thought it was the perfect book to, I don't know, launch me. It was just, and it was so affirming of my identity too, as like this nerdy, but emotional bookish, but also like dramatic person. Mm. So it did kind of feel I don't know. There were, there were lots of layers to putting that away. And of course has a super happy ending because I put mm. it away, wrote yeah. hour of the bees, um, got representation with hour of the bees and sold hour of the bees and a second untitled book in a two book deal to my editor at Candlewick. And when my editor said, okay, let's talk about book two. What's it going to be? I said, well, of course it's going to be pirate book. Yeah, of course it is. So it did get published after all. Was drafting and revising kind of melded together then when you when your editor said to you, you know, what's book two? And then you're like, no, I've got this pirate book that I really want to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you draft it from scratch or were you kind of diving in and, and revising and redrafting some sections? I'd love to hear about that. When Kaylin and I decided that that would be the book, I did open the most previous version of it that I had been working on. Right. The most previous. That's the latest version. The latest. That's the one. <laughs> that's the word. Um, yeah. I did open it there and read it. And if I remember, I did one new, basically a revision based on that draft. Okay that I turned in to her for her first draft that she would see. And was Um, that already the version where she had parents who were researchers and they died in the beginning? And did you already have those pieces in place? I did. Yeah. At that point, the book opens sort of the same way that it opens now with Fidelia out on the boat with her parents and a horrible accident happens. However, there's a couple things that were still in that draft when I turned it into Kaylin. One was a sort of sidekick for Fidelia, a little boy named Gilbert, who was also an orphan and who was sort of this pickpocket kind of scrappy kid of the streets who was also searching for his parents. Okay. Uh, Fidelia basically made an agreement with Merrick to get his treasure in exchange for him finding her parents because she still believed that they were alive and in that original draft that I sent to Kaylin they emerged at the end they like walked in Uh, at the end uh, um and yeah so part of my revision process with my editor was killing them off once and for all and sort of (laughs) letting letting the book sink down into that kind of an emotional sphere because also the other thing too is um the book that I turned in to Kaylin was sort of this Franken draft of emotional, like real emotional honesty, especially mm-hmm. with Merrick's storyline. Um, and the most, and also the most zany rolled doll esque, almost slapsticky humor and puns. And the two just did not really mesh well together as uh. you can imagine. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so there was all this emotional work that Fidelia did on her journey with Merrick that was then kind of immediately undone as soon as her parents walked in the door. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. And um, and a lot of uh, there were two, or I guess counting this little boy Gilbert, there were th- two other characters or three other characters, including him, that were cut. So there was the owner of the, the candy shop. Who, who makes a brief appearance. Who makes in a one brief of the appearance. <laughs> yes. Um, but who I was like, oh, perfect. That's Gilbert's long lost brother. And they'll discover the, the headstone of their parents um, in a cemetery together. And so Gilbert will end up with a family anyway. Um, and then there was also this sort of old wizened, doctor who lived in a windmill um that was sort of like a father figure to Merrick uh which sounds (laughs) so funny now um that was also in the book that I again that just did not belong in this book because it Mm. just the book was still so episodic yeah and so part of the revision process with my editor eventually was removing all of the things that just didn't belong the other thing that was interesting is Merrick in the in all the drafts that I had written before and in the draft I gave to Kaylin did not have a storyline we didn't have any of that timeline wow because I cannot imagine the book without it now oh and I was so resistant to doing that mostly because I just didn't think there was I just didn't think there was anything there I just was like I don't like how I don't know what I would even talk about if I gave Merrick his own storyline. I have no idea what I would fill that with. And now I know this is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Cause I actually wanted to ask you about that. So so was your editor the one who suggested that Merrick have his own timeline or his own storyline and then going back and forth in time? I think it was. And I had just finished Hour of the Bees, which definitely had this dual timeline. Right. Yeah. Structure. Yeah. And I remember being very resistant. Like, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to pigeonhole myself as like the writer who does the dual storylines, which like, oh, sweet Lindsay, two books. (laughs) Repeating a structure does not pigeonhole you at all. Yeah. Especially because race is so different from bees. Like race of the bottom is so different from Hour of the Bees. Yeah, it's so different. And the way the way that that particular form works in both books is just so different anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, on the surface level, structurally, they might seem the same, but the way that the timelines interact with each other in a story are just so different anyway. Mm. Um, so I remember I like have, finding finding it so difficult to find Merrick's voice and to figure out what even that whole timeline and storyline is going to be about until I something clicked and I was like oh this needs to be written like almost like a romance yeah because part of Merrick's part of Race to the Bottom of the Sea is this romantic plot line between Merrick and someone else in the book I don't know if I should <laughs> spoil, spoil that it. I mean I, don't know. I feel like this whole uh this whole podcast is kind of premised on spoilers like we need to talk about the whole book so if you're if you feel yes. comfortable with it you're, you're yes. welcome to spoil it we'll do another yeah. spoiler warning yeah spoilers following from this point <laughs> forward it's it's still a good book even if you have this particular thing spoiled but yeah um yeah Merrick's Merrick has this past relationship with uh Fidelia's aunt the very 
sort of buttoned up librarian. Yeah. And part of, part of Fidelia's journey is sort of learning this and being surprised that not only Merrick had this sort of other side, uh, this kind of like tenderness to him, but also that her aunt, who she thinks of as so prim and so just um, like introverted and quiet and would never do anything like date a pirate actually was in love with a pirate and maybe have this adventurous life and and just that people have all these different sides to them so as soon as I I wrote the scene I like turned on the soundtrack to the curious case of Benjamin Button Mm -hmm. which has some like incredibly romantic parts to the score like just Mm. such beautiful romantic music and wrote like wrote the scene where Merrick and Julia are alone on the island with the jackfruit trees and just sort right. of basking in each other's company and just try to like get into the headspace of this is romantic it's a middle grade mm. book yes but there's this romance at the heart of it and I'm allowed to explore that so as soon as I explored that and sort of leaned into that romance then the rest of his storyline kind of spilled out backwards and forwards and I was able to incorporate it in the book during revision yeah well that makes so much sense and I yeah it's so interesting hearing about that because I can't imagine the book without that storyline and without Merrick and Julia it just doesn't like it's almost like the book doesn't really make sense yeah without it in a way even though the two stories yeah sorry I'm interrupting you Merrick always Merrick always had a relationship with Julia and the book always always ended with him sort of coming back to Arborly, dying it's major spoilers um dying in julia's <laughs> arms and fidelia kind of going oh my what? gosh you guys oh so together? it kind of came out of nowhere like the reader didn't it wasn't foreshadowed or shown yeah. beforehand i mean um, you know there were little hints like merrick's ship is called the jewel because that's what yes. he called julia yeah. there were you know sort of maybe hints in his sort of grotto that they visit um, right, but it was and... not yeah we as the reader you did not get any sort of backstory about Merrick and some woman that he loved so it was uh... a lot less a lot more like whoa this is really out of nowhere so this was the second time that I read the book and I just found it so satisfying that I knew yes you know I slowly discovered on my own as a reader why the treasure is so important or this one particular piece of treasure this one brooch is so important to Merrick who is so important to him and the fact that it's Fidelia's aunt and putting those pieces together yourself and then getting to watch Fidelia discover it herself. Like you're waiting for that moment that she is going to discover it because you know it has to come out at some point because she's in both of their lives. So yeah, it's just so satisfying to know. I did the same thing in Hour of the Bees. There was a point in the um, revision process when Kaylin was sort of like, hey, you keep saying... Um, that they cut the tree down like in every single chapter in that alternate timeline when you talk about the tree you always say and they cut it down and they cut it down until and that goes on and on until we finally do see them cut it down would it be better maybe if we don't say that they cut it down so it's a big surprise to the reader when they do cut it down and I was like no because I like that the reader knows it's going to happen and they're just waiting to see how it happens and when it happens. Yeah. And I, I did the same thing in race. We're like, you know, Merrick's going to die. You know, he's going to die. He's going to die. I tell you, he's going to die. He's going to die. There's no, you're not, I don't think as the reader expecting any sort of 
like I've told you, there's no cure. Like there's no way that he won't die. There's no scientific way that he could survive this. And then he does die. Um, And I think maybe some writers might shy away from sort of spoiling it for their readers in that way. Um, But that's the difference between suspense and mystery. Yeah. Mystery, mystery is when your characters and your readers don't know what's going on. And it, and it's exciting in a very different way, but it's, but suspense is when your readers know what's going to happen and your characters don't yet. Mm -hmm. And so the tension there is very much that voyeurism of watching your characters, watching the characters in a book, make choices and get closer and closer. And as the reader, you're like, Oh oh my gosh, I know what's going to happen. And they don't know yet. And then when that click happens, Oh, it's so satisfying to me. Okay, so I've got a couple other questions just about like the, I guess we're kind of squishing together. Normally we talk about drafting, then we talk about revising. We're kind of squishing them together because of the way that you wrote this book. But I wanted to ask you about research because when I was rereading, I was just like, there's so much stuff in here that you would have had to research from marine biology to shipfaring to piracy, historical details, because it does have this, like you said, it's like analog what was it like Victoria, like late 19th century, kind of mid 19th century. So yeah, yeah, you had to have like historical. Yeah. And it definitely has that, that vibe, which I love, but yeah, there's some kind of historical details that really ground it that make it, you know, where you are because they're talking about like radios and cameras. Um, but they don't have like, they don't have the internet. They don't like, it would definitely not sure. in present day, you know, that from actually like really from the beginning, just because of some yeah. of the language choices. Um, so yeah, did you research? I'm sure you did a lot of research before, but were you kind of researching throughout drafting and revising? And when you came back to it, did you have to do more research? Like, how did that work? Yes. Constantly, constantly was doing research. <laughs> and um, I, in fact, I did research all the way up through copy edits because I am not a sailor. Right. And tried really <laughs> hard to cut corners in the research of like what different sails and ropes and things on boats are. And my dear copy editor for that book was very kind to share her knowledge and make a lot of corrections. And I still don't really understand how all that works. So sorry to everybody <laughs> who sails, who read my book and was like, this girl has never been on a boat. You are right. <laughs> Um, it seemed legitimate to me, but I, I don't sail either. And I don't know anything about boats, I but you were using know. boaty terms that I thought oh, sounded I very for sure tried to use boaty terms. I did. <laughs> I did a lot of reading and a lot of YouTube videos about sailing and yeah. eventually was like, you know, everyone who picks up a pirate book gets it. They're on a boat, there's sails, there's things, there's knots to be tied. I just, there are masts. There are there's sails. Help, help me, readers. Just go with me. Just <laughs> pretend I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, because I do put a lot of trust in my readers that way to just kind of get what I'm trying to get, like get what I'm saying. The historical details. I mean, the book. The book really ended up as a mishmash of all sorts of historical objects, details, settings, all sorts of different things. And in various versions, it was set in um, like actual our time, 1902, the Southern coast of England. There was a time when I set it in Nantucket or thought I was going to set it in Nantucket. um, And I was going to do even more of like a Moby Dick retelling, like wind that into this. 
Um, so it ended up as this really weird mishmash. And I remember a specific conversation with my editor at one point who was like, I don't know if I understand because there's pinafores. You refer to her wearing a pinafore, which feels so 1800s, but you also, she has a, like a radio that she's able to communicate with yeah. her parents. And that feels so modern. And I was like, yeah, but girls were wearing pinafores up until, I don't know, the 1920s. And also yeah. guess when radio was invented? The late 1800s. So like <laughs> actually historically, yeah, there were times when pinafores and radios and cameras would have overlapped yeah. for sure. We just don't think of it like that. So part of the research and part of the creating the world was really deciding how much do I want to push back against readers interpretations of history and go with mm. what actually happened and how much do I want to like not um, make it difficult for them to feel grounded so I wanted to ask you about um, I guess like influences and then also like working within conventions because I think this is something that maybe a lot of people struggle with in terms of like you're you know that you're writing a pirate story or you know that you're yes. writing like an orphan story or a child like I at one point or I don't know the page here at one point I wrote down all the genres that you kind of have in this book and there's so many like the romance story the pirate story the pirate adventure story the kind of lost treasure story the yes. uh child genius story because Fidelia can like invent crazy like inventions like she's really really clever um and there are a couple others. Oh, the grief story, like the, the story yeah. about losing someone. Um, and so that's really interesting to me. But then it's interesting, I guess, if you know, it, because it's conscious on your part, you're like, I love pirate stories. I want to write a pirate story. So how yeah. do you do that in a way that feels so fresh and like you're not just going back to the same cliches that all pirate stories kind of have? But at the same time, you're writing a pirate story, so you want to have some of those quote-unquote cliches or those conventions, as I would call them. So yeah, I'd love to hear about how you navigated that. Yeah, I think that is something that comes really naturally to me because mm -hmm. when I think about all the projects that I have worked on and want to work on, a lot of them stem from, I really love this kind of story. I want to write my own version of it. Or what would, what would a Lindsay pirate book look like? Or what would a Lindsay mm -hmm. adventure book look like or whatever? Um, so absolutely this started, this is and was at its heart, a pirate book, a pirate adventure book. That is the, that is the main convention that I, when I thought about this book, when I, you know, I just like, fell back on every pirate book and movie that I've ever loved. Treasure Island, mm. Muppet Treasure Island, Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean, Shipwrecked, like I mentioned before, um, Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson, which is, um, he's the same guy who wrote Treasure Island and it's right. another great adventure seafaring um, sort of book. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know at what point I start leaping off away from conventions and start doing it sort of my own way, but I will say, I, I feel like I am interested in the conventions within the conventions that maybe aren't always talked about, mm -hmm. um, like, like in a pirate story, the relationship between all the different pirate crews and the friendships mm -hmm. that are there, um, instead of just betrayals and backstabbing and mutiny, 
<laughs> I tended to think of, well, I just really liked the thought of like pure camaraderie and, yeah. um, and found family. So that's mm. a convention that, that is present in a lot of pirate movies, but you are in pirate stories, but isn't really talked about. And the child genius was fun to play with mm. too, just because it was really fun to give a girl, a STEM genius quality. Yeah. She's this engineer, um, which was really fun to give to my pinafore wearing gal. Yeah. Two more things that were, that are a little bit more about like drafting or creating the world Mm -hmm. um the first thing was like how you went about naming things because I love all the names in this book like everything from Arbally Island to the fact that her parents are called Ida and Arthur Quayle is it Ida oh no Ida no it's Ida Ida okay Ida Quayle and Arthur Quayle and Fidelia Quayle like those names are just so wonderful um all the ships have beautiful names um Bon Bon Voyage the sweet shop (laughs) yes uh the names of all the creatures and you know some of them aren't totally invented creatures others actually exist in the real world um and the names of the plants so I wanted to know like did those names come to you like quite early on or did you have to sit down and go like okay we have to come up with cool names for things and like brainstorm them so I always make lists of if I know that there's going to be a lot of pirate ships or plants or characters that need certain names I always make lists ahead of time okay so and actually it really helps not just in my world building but actually in the storytelling if I have a list of a bunch of different plant names that sound cool Mm -hmm. and maybe I only need one or two plants to actually be named but now I have like a list of 10 and I can kind of see how they work together Mm -hmm. it really helps me like maybe I'll add maybe I need like another storyline where I can use some of these and and like so it, it does turn into this um like it maps it 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 helps me map the story in a in a different way if I have these lists of the actual what the words would look like on the page like these aesthetics and these kind of word textures of all these different lists so um I started with the I mean Fidelia was always Fidelia Quail was always Fidelia Quail Mm. um I got the name Quail on a street sign there was a a street called Quail Drive that I used to walk past Mm. and I thought oh that's a cool word yeah. Um, and paired that with Fidelia. It has such a good rhythm to it in my head. It doesn't quite rhyme. There's something about it. I don't know. The repeat of the L's Fidelia yes. Quail is yeah. sort of satisfying to me. Yeah. Um, also, I can't remember if it made it into the book, but her, her middle name is Aurora. Um, it is in the book. I think there's a point where she is kind of talking to herself and she's going Fidelia Aurora Quail or like someone it's like a very yeah. decisive moment. Yeah. Yeah. So her initials that. are FAQ, frequently asked questions, which I did not realize that I, I did on that. purpose as just like a little nerdy wink. That is uh, amazing. Because that's for sure her. Um, Arborly was originally called, what was it called? Maybe it was always called Arborly. It was always called Arborly. There was another location that they went to that they called, that was called Jewel Bay. Um, that was like me adding more hints about the jewel. Um, 
uh, Cheap Shot Charlie and Bloody L were brainstormed. There was a big long list of pirate crew names that I made. Right. Um, and eventually winnowed it down to just two because I could not handle that many characters. Yeah. Um, and chose the two best, Cheap Shot Charlie and Bloody L. They're um, so great. Thank you. And the the candy, all the candy, I sat and made a list of all the candy. Like literally it was like, ooh, today I get, today my job is to name all this candy. Ah, um, and so, so there's Choco Gloms and Kaleido Rainbow Figs and all of these different ones. Fizz something. I can't remember all of them now, but um, so yeah, that was, that was, that is still how I, how I do things. If there's mm-hmm. If I know there's going to be um, a bunch of things that need to be named, I try to do it before I start drafting. So I have that list already prepared. Right. Because if I have to go onto the internet or if I have to pause and think of the perfect name, I am going to get lost down a rabbit hole. Right. So I, I try to prep for drafting Mm. with those lists. And you know, that's, it's such a fun time in the process for me to like put on music and just fill up a notebook with, all of these things. Um, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, Ida was my great grandma's name, so I used that. Oh, and I Arthur, love that. Can't remember where. Oh, I don't know where I got Arthur from. It just seemed to fit. But, um, so yeah, it's a it's a blend of what looks and sounds good to me, and also, um, yeah, just things from my own life that I can weave in and make it seem more fantastical. Yeah, because it's, I mean, I know we've spoken before in just our numerous conversations about language and texture and like the yes. texture that la- specific words add to a world and how world building is, of course, it's about like the map or like the bird's eye view of what does this world look like, but it also comes down to like the names of, you know, what do they call their stew or what do they, yes. when they say like, oh my gosh, do they say, oh my gosh, or do they say something else? You know, yes. like if they have an exclamation of horror or joy. Um, and it, yeah, that's such an important part of world building. And I totally agree. That's like one of my favorite things is just sitting down and like exploring and brainstorming and writing just lists of words. Cause a list is so much easier to write than a story or a scene. <laughs> yes. But then yeah. once you have that list, um, if you're in that headspace to create a story, a story can pop out at you. I mean, that's literally yeah. what happened with this book. I think also right. coming back from coming off of Hour of the Bees, um, or even coming off of like the when I originally drafted this, coming off of two very contemporary set books, mm-hmm. which those other novels that I had written were, I was just so anxious to do some real beautiful fantastical naming of things yeah you don't really get a chance to do that in a contemporary set even a fantasy set in a contemporary world um so I went like whole hog with this I was like everything that can be have a special name is going to have it everything Mm -hmm. that can be I mean they don't just eat soup they eat turtle soup and they don't just you know, the, they don't just go to a, a store. It's a candy shop. And like, everything has to be just have its own special detail. It sounds like lists are a huge part of your process in terms of, well, especially for this book in terms of yeah. brainstorming the plot and then like the world building and everything. And also love the idea that, uh, that maybe for writers who love world building, but struggle with plot, that actually you can lean into that and 
kind yes. of get your plot to spring out of world building. Um, yep. As long as you don't kind of get stuck in just world building and not want to actually draft the book, which I think a lot of people do kind of get stuck in that cul-de-sac of like, but I like just writing lists of things and not actually writing the scenes. You yeah. can allow that. Yeah, you can kind of look at your world building list and go, okay, what kind of plot could come out of a book that has these details? One of the things I noticed is how much color there is in this book and how vivid the colors are like you just spend so much time I guess also when you write a book about the sea and the sky the sea you spend a lot of time talking about the sea and what color it is and the sky and what color that is because the sky and the sea are just these you know beautiful partners and there's so many beautiful sunrises and sunsets but then also the colors of the the flora and fauna the colors of you know even like the color of the the chum I don't know if you yes. actually described the color, but I have a vivid picture of the color of the chum in the first chapter. So I wanted to yes. ask if that is that something that comes naturally to you as a writer to because I know that you love color, like I know that you love green. I do. Um, yeah. So is that something that comes naturally <laughs> that like you just tend to put a lot of color in your books, like just in your fast drafting? Or is it something that you go back and you kind of make sure that you've got lots of really vivid, like color descriptions in there I would say it for sure comes natural like Mm -hmm. if I if a if a anything in my book if I can picture it I know exactly what it looks like there's no really in between for me oh wow yeah I mean I and I I have to dial it back a lot when I'm revising obviously and Mm -hmm. I I self-censor a lot in my head as I'm drafting now because otherwise I would absolutely describe every person everything down to every detail that I, you know, can possibly mm. give. Um, but it's just not necessary. And it doesn't, I've learned it actually doesn't give a lot of sp- like space for readers to yeah. do their own work on their end. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't always love it as a reader either. So that's, I mean, that was me just being like, actually, I don't want every single detail of everything shoved down my throat as a reader. Right. So I need to stop doing that so much as a writer, <laughs> but it, it is like, I could, I could absolutely be like a showrunner for any book that I come up with just as far as like (laughs) the absolute detail of everything from the music that would be playing in the candy store to the exactly how the library is laid out and what the brick looks like outside to like exactly who could play Mm. every person, like visually everything, all of it. But for me, it's that, but it's also about the way the word looks on the page. And I don't know how to describe this in a way that doesn't make me seem a little unhinged, but there's some words that just <laughs> look right. It's right. not even that they no, sound right. I mean, yes, some sentences and words sound right too, but that's a separate thing <laughs> than like words need to look right on the page and they yeah. need to look right next to each other. And, yeah. and sometimes that's a specific color that just looks right. Sometimes ochre is preferred to yellow, not because visually that's exactly what I'm going for, but because that is the word that looks right on yeah. the page and in this sentence. It's this weird, it almost reminds me of, what's the thing? Oh, synesthesia. Where Yeah, like, that's so, what I was thinking about as you were talking. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's this, synesthesia that writers have or develop in our own Mm. ways Mm. with certain words and sentences and layouts and and it's not even about the word's definition 
Yeah, it makes so much sense because it's like, if you think about the act of writing, it's like each word is a little brick and you're making the story, you're literally building the story out of these black and white shapes on paper or on your screen. So it makes sense that you would pay attention to the visual uh, experience of of putting the words there because that's also what the reader experiences. Like you can see if it looks right. You did mention before that this book was an option book um, yes. because I wanted to ask you, we, we kind of tend to end off with, you know, how did you sell this book? How did it, how did it get published? And you kind of already answered by, you know, you had a two book deal. So your, your editor was kind of expecting a second book from you. Um, but was it, was it as seamless as you sent it to your editor and she immediately loved it? And it was imme- like, it was your option book, like, the whole way through mm-hmm. um and it was always going to be your option book or how did that do you want to talk a little bit more about how that happened yeah it yeah. actually is a really cool kind of story um, okay so as we were getting to the end of revisions for hour of the bees she said you know if you have something in mind you can send it to me or you can send me a couple pitches and we can talk about what sh- the second book should be <clears throat> i really hoped it would be race to the bottom of the sea, but I wanted to kind of just double check and make sure that I was giving her, I don't know, just options. So I wrote, I wrote a pitch for this. I wrote a pitch for the Bigfoot files, which I also Um, knew I wanted to, I knew I like that was also on my list of like, I want to do this. And then I wrote a pitch for this other random idea that I had had that I like, don't even that idea just like died. So, um, (laughs) so I sent her, I sent her these three pitches and, um, she looked at them and she said, you know, I really like the sound of race to the bottom of the sea. I also really like the sound of the Bigfoot files. Um, but I do remember you had said on Twitter for years that you were working on this book called pirate book. What's pirate Mm. book? And could we possibly publish pirate book? And Mm. is there, I just want to give you a chance to get pirate book published because I know it was so important to you for so long because she had done her stocking before she offered, you know, to buy my books. And she said, race to the the bottom of the sea has a pirate in it. Are you going to, is this going to override the other pirate book? Like, I don't want to, I want to make sure you have a chance with this pirate book. So I emailed her and was like, this is pirate book. This (laughs) is it's the same book. And oh, I love um, that. yeah, which was just really, I mean, that's very much how my editor is. And I'm mm-hmm. so lucky to have her that, um, she really does want me to work on passion projects if I can. And, yeah. um, the other thing that was interesting about that whole process of choosing an option book is I had said to her, you know, the Bigfoot files is a lot more like hour of the bees in tone. It is the kind of follow-up book that would make a lot of sense. It's contemporary mm-hmm. magic, um, woven into, you know, just like everyday life. Um, tonally it's going to be a lot more similar, whereas race to the bottom of the sea is like this totally different direction. Yeah. Um, and might be harder to just follow up just like, Mm. you know, marketing, like, how do you, I don't know. Like your brand, like your brand as an author. Yeah, that's exactly it. So she was very wise and said, you know, I thought about that too. And because I already know you want to write so many different things and in so many genres and that your brand is going to be kind of eclectic. Mm -hmm. I think we should purposefully do something very different from bees right away. So you don't get pigeonholed with two books in a row. Yes. Which was really, 
Yeah. Which was really, really smart. And you know, that's something that over the years, I always feel like I should probably think about my author brand more. And I just care less about it (laughs) the more I, because yeah, I just don't even know at this point. And I also, (laughs) I know, I know the, the, the easiest definition of a brand is what you're already doing, but on purpose. Right. Right. I love that. Yeah. Which I do Mm. like. And, um, so when I do care about my brand, which is on and off, you know, that's what I try to do, you know, what I'm already doing and what I already like, but on purpose and with some intention. Um, but I, yeah, just, I don't really care anymore about, (laughs) about all the different genres and the lineup and what order and, and, um, Mm. but that really was started with Kaylin who just sort of said, you know, it's fine. Let's, let's give them something completely unexpected. So they know to expect the unexpected from you every single time. I was going to say like your brand is that you have no brand. (laughs) People never know what they're going to get. It's great for my sales record (laughs) and my, yeah. Well, also at the same time, but like, as I said that, as it was coming out of my mouth, I was also thinking that's not really true though, because you know, you know what you're going to get with a Lindsay Eager book. Sure. Like it might be a pirate story or it might be a mother daughter story or like, sorry, this, um, yeah, like love story for the ages, but you know what you're going to get. You're going to get amazing writing. You're going to get vivid setting. You're going to get like really complicated, complex relationships. And that is your brand is your talent. And like your, like your craft really, I think is your brand, which is awesome. Somebody allow me to just like brag for just a second. Um, Please do. uh, Leah Grover, who is this bookseller and writer um, that I'm friends with. uh, We, I reached out to her to get a blurb for my arc of my next book. Mm. Um, And she very kindly gave me this beautiful blurb. And um, one thing that she said was that with Lindsay Eager books, you can always expect um, sort of loving without any conditions and also this overwhelming sense of forgiveness oh I love that yeah and that makes so much sense it does make sense and it yeah it just is one of those themes forgiveness I never ever ever would have thought yeah that's like a theme that I go back to and write about constantly this kind of like overwhelming unconditional love or love in Mm. any kind of conditions or like you know figuring out how to make love work um and forgiveness I never would have thought that but it's true and and it's Mm. certainly true in race to the bottom of the sea on multiple levels um but also Fidelia story is very much one of forgiving herself and there was a point when I was revising race to the bottom of the sea I was pregnant bees was coming out. I was getting ready to get married. I was trying to do all, like, it was just this <laughs> crazy time. Um, and I, I was really struggling. And, um, Kaylin said, you know, this is your water eater, you know, Fidelia tries so hard in the book to get this invention, right. And, um, uses all of this advice from her parents to make it work and, and finally has the success. And, and so, yeah, this was a really hard book to write in a lot of ways, but it mm-hmm. always was, it was really joyful too. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. It sounds like you have such an amazing relationship with your editor, which is so I cool. sure do. I sure it's do. such a blessing to have people in your corner who really believe in you, not just like in the book that you're currently writing, but in yeah. you as a person and as a writer, like they have faith that you can pull it off. Like sometimes yes. when you're in the dark, 
shadowy landscape of revising and drafting. And you're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to the end of this deep, dark tunnel. And if I can actually do it to have someone also like someone who reads for a living, someone who really understands stories to say like, I believe you could do this is just so huge. Yeah. And I, I, I would still be around, I think, if I didn't have an editor that I was close to like this. Yeah. Um, obviously, because that's the majority of writers that I know. They don't have a relationship with one editor the way that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do consider it to be this huge boon and luck yeah. and um, rocket power for my yeah. writing, for sure, and my career and me as a person too, mm. you know, to, to just have that trust we're going to end off with another writing rule kind of like the, so this is Lindsay's idea, which I think is a great idea. And it's the idea of like looking at very common writing rules and then discussing whether they actually apply to us or not, or how we feel about them. And I kind of chose one. This is a little bit tongue in cheek because I chose (laughs) one that I'm pretty sure you do not. Well, I know you, you basically disregard this rule or maybe you thought about it, but you, yeah, you, you go against it. take this down so it's the idea that you have to or that you should write what you know oh (laughs) oh Haley oh my gosh yeah so here's the thing I do think on its surface Mm -hmm. write what you know sounds like terrible advice actually I think because (laughs) Well, here's the thing. It's that word. No. What does that mean? Yeah. Write what you know, in what way, yeah. right? What you are already an, an expert in, write Only the experience that you have specifically lived. No, so you can only write absolutely. about a Mormon girl living in Utah. Right. Exactly. I'm only allowed <laughs> to write about oldest sisters. I'm only, I should only write about or even now, like I should only write about what it means to be like a mom who works from home. Like I, it yeah. just, so, but, but actually write what you know, if you take that word no to mean more than just what you are book smart about or what you specifically have gathered experience about, then it becomes like so, so true because write what you know Like, what do I know? Well, I know that like ever since I was really, really little, I've loved books and words and that adventure stories are transportative and make me cry with longing, even Mm. though like, am I strong enough to hold a sword? No. Um, So like, what do, you know, what else do I know? I know that children's literature is magic and I know that like, so I know all of these things. So those Mm -hmm. are the things that I will write. Yeah. Yeah. I Um, love that. Yeah. Write what you know. And even like, sometimes people say like, write, like there's other variations of that too, that I think all can be true, but none of them are prescriptive. Like write what you're afraid of or write what scares you Mm. or write what you're curious about. Mm. Like those are all really good offshoots of it too, but also that are less restrictive, I guess, because you could be curious about sharks, for instance, exactly. and you've never, you didn't grow up near the ocean, you know, but you're curious about sharks. You love sharks when you were a kid. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. Um, and sometimes like the stuff that you don't know is the stuff that's most like joyful to you or interesting to you. I mean, don't know yes. isn't like you haven't experienced it directly, but you want to know about it. You, you're interested, you're fascinated. Yes. Yeah. So like, if I took right what you know to be very literal and serious, mm-hmm. I would need to acquire a marine biology degree before I wrote Race to the Bottom of the Sea, which would be right. a real shame. Yeah, because that would take would a long have, time. It would take a long time. <laughs> and I also wonder too, if it would remove some of the magic that comes when you don't, when you're not an expert in something, you're just kind of a, an armchair curious observer yeah yeah yeah. you're an amateur like I'll never forget the um someone telling me like the word amateur is not it, like people use it as an insult but all it means is someone it comes from the latin to love like someone who loves something who does <gasps> really something. Yeah, yeah so like someone who does something out of love not because it's your profession so Ooh. you can be an amateur marine biologist. You just love reading about sharks, but you're not out there tagging sharks like on a boat. And also you're not like exposed to the grind of that job or like the difficult things about that job, the hard things, the things that right. just wouldn't gel with you as a person or would, yeah, or would maybe make you a bit jaded or a bit cynical. Um, yeah. and like there's nothing cynical about Race to the Bottom of the Sea. Right, because I think right. partly because of that, because you're just coming from coming at it from a perspective of just love and joy yeah and so in that case yeah well and I'm also reminded while you're talking about that like one of the reasons why I love being a writer and being a novelist is the ability to become like a short-term expert in something random that I'm curious about for the time it takes to write a book and then move on and learn more Mm -hmm. about something else and either like just kind of integrate that experience or that knowledge or forget it completely. <laughs> yeah. Um, just the act of learning is really fun. Yeah. The so, act of learning and, the, yeah. and, and, and bouncing around from thing to thing and sort of following, just kind of following your nose wherever it's kind yeah. of leading you. Um, I like, I would, I would so much rather kind of follow my curiosity into 40 different subjects in which I am an amateur over the mm. years in various stories where I really don't ever have a complete grasp on like the, the expert level, you know, knowledge Mm. that I would have if I committed to one thing, I would much rather live like that or, or, or write like that than sink down into one or two specific fields. Yeah. Yeah. And know it. Um, but I think there's one more, like, I don't know, take on write what you know, which is like your emotional, knowledge Mm, yeah like what you're saying about forgive like always coming back to the idea of forgiveness or the idea of found family like yeah those are things that yeah that you know intimately emotion on an emotional level yeah and yeah this is like a weird angle to come at it with but I like hopefully it it, like makes my point but I so I'm the oldest Mm -hmm. child the oldest daughter it's so so much of my identity is shaped by being the oldest. Absolutely. Like it just is. I'm, I'm controlling, I'm bossy, I'm in charge. I'm (laughs) so compassionate. I have a game plan for everything. When I'm with my family, it's me who's figuring out what time we're doing stuff, where, who's bringing food, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so 
and, and it also has caused, I think, or like helped shape a lot of my anxieties just because constantly feeling like I need to like be protective and make sure everybody's okay. Right. And, um, yet I have not yet written a character that's an oldest child. Uh-huh. I've written Carolina in Hour of the Bees as the middle child. She has an older sister mm. and there's a lot of information about like there's a lot of exploration of that fidelia and miranda in race and bigfoot are both only children um duck in my next middle grade is an orphan but she's also sort of the youngest in her kind of quote-unquote family yeah she's definitely the baby the baby of the group yeah yeah and then in circus book my main character there is also the baby and wow, Lindsay, it's time for you to write. I know, an I know, sister book. <laughs> Seriously, sister. and it's it's so funny how I haven't like every once in a while I realize that, and I'm like, oh, I'm probably actively avoiding it, and just mm-hmm. don't realize it because there's yeah. so much emotional truth there and emotional knowledge there that I've just have not yet mined. And at the same time, I can see how my perspective and my knowledge as an oldest sister and an oldest child has informed all of these other characters, even though they're only children and youngest children and middle children. So like, am I an expert on being a middle child? No, definitely not. But I have used my emotional knowledge of of what that has been like to observe and written at it like that. I mean, anyway, so it's just interesting, Mm -hmm. right? What you know, yeah, I would almost rephrase it to like, don't worry about writing what you know, just write what you're fascinated about and also realize that what you know is going to be there. Like whatever you know, it will, yeah, it, it will, will show up. up whether you, yeah. if you're the eldest sibling and you're writing out. about the baby, it, your <laughs> oldest gonna... sibling view is going to come up, is going to be there on the page. And like all that Which, stuff that you were yeah. saying about like returning to themes of forgiveness, returning to themes of finding your place in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's not stuff that you like decide, oh, I'm going to keep writing books about forgiveness. It just comes up because it is what you know, like it's what your yes. heart knows or what, you know, your, your unconscious mind knows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think also the phrase could be just changed to write whatever you want, write, write whatever you want. you want. I love that. Yeah. Write what you want. Um, yeah. and that's something like I've talked to a lot of writers in the last year, just teaching my classes and so many writers still are after all these years of having like a social media place where we can talk about this and encourage each other. So many writers Mm -hmm. still feel barred by what they feel like they should write about versus what they actually really want to write about or want to write like, like I really want to write like this. Um, And I, I, it comes from a, a different place for everybody I think like mm. some people are shaking off that MFA yeah guilt or feeling or whatever um some just have not seen representation of themselves and so feel like they're you know not allowed to do that in that reason for that reason yeah um but I just can't emphasize enough how important it is for writers to write what they want yeah and like what yeah like going back to your list idea and the kind of birthplace of race to the bottom of the sea is like that idea of writing what you're what you love what brings you so much joy and like 
Yeah, and like I, I love also the definition of fascination, which um, there's this writer called Martha Beck that I often come back to because I love her work. And she talks about fascination being um, sustained attention without effort. And I love that so much. Like if you can read about something, if you can read about sharks or botany or like Victorian corsets or I don't know, like or if you read romance novel after romance novel without noticing it. Yeah. Yeah. Or like kids books or picture books or whatever it is. Um, If that's the thing that you can, that gives you that, that sense of sustained attention without effort, then that's what you should write. Yeah. Don't take it so seriously. Write what you love. Yeah. Write what yeah. you, write what you already know, write what you want to know. Yeah. And keep coming back to joy. Joy is the yeah. thing that really keeps you going. Yeah. Amen. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for spending so much time with me and talking oh, yes. about Race to the Bottom of the Sea. My I, I loved reading it again and it was so fun talking to you about it. All your joy, all your love, all your, all the things that your heart knows in that book. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever do it again in the same way. I will absolutely do it again in different ways with other books that will have Mm. parts of my heart and my soul and all of that. But I just, I don't know. This was a peak in its own way. It was its own special, Mm. you know, special thing. So I feel so lucky that I got to publish it. Yeah. Well, we're so lucky that we get to read it. Thank you. That too. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to story of the book if you like this episode please share it with a friend or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts until next time stay safe and keep writing bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs>